My name is Mark Bennett and I'm a research psychologist at the University of Cambridge and I'm interested in the development of mental health difficulties in adolescents and some of the best ways to help people experiencing mental health difficulties. Uh, I was working on an active ingredient which is called psychological decentering and that's just a fancy word for being able to take a step back and try to place your difficult experiences in a bigger context. Um, for our report, we wanted to try characterize this ability as best we can and try to understand its, its main features and traits. We also wanted to understand how it plays a role in the development of mental health problems across adolescents. And then we wanted to explore how decentering plays a role in psychological interventions for mental health problems. Welcome, Mark, to the podcast. Really good to have you here. And I'm really interested in this ingredient, psychological decentering. I must admit, before Welcome funded you to do this work, I hadn't heard of psychological decentering, but it's something that is kind of intuitively quite an obvious thing in humans. And not necessarily, although it's part of mental health interventions, I guess, it's a skill that we all have, isn't it, as human beings? Do you want to kind of just elaborate a little bit tell us a bit about what it is and and what the theory behind it is absolutely i think uh that's what to me is the appealing aspect of psychological decentering that it's something that's familiar to a lot of people but it's also something that we don't pay a lot of attention attention to i sometimes refer to it as seasoning in cooking you know that uh seasoning is something that you need to be really good at you need to get it right but if it's done well you won't even notice it's there and that's sort of the thing about psychological decentering. Um, I would argue that as long as we've had psychological interventions, we've had ideas about decentering and decentering related skills, but we've never really focused our attention on those skills specifically. So, well, what is decentering? Um, I think, as we mentioned in our introduction, it's just a fancy word for being able to take a step back and try to see uh, what's going on in our mind from a more objective perspective. So if I could go into an example, we kind of get stuck into difficult things that are going on inside our minds quite easily. So these could be difficult thoughts or difficult memories or difficult feelings. And even we can get stuck into some of the difficult situations we find ourselves in day to day. So for the last couple of months, we might be getting sucked into this 24-hour news cycle around COVID or as we're coming up to the Christmas period, we might get sucked into some of the tense family situations that inevitably arise around Christmas. And we can focus so much of our attention on our perceptions of these situations that we start to view our own interpretation as being a perfect model of what's actually happening in that moment right there and then. So it's almost like our thoughts and our memories and our feelings and our view of the situation is the most precise reflection of what's happening on the outside and when you start to treat these experiences like that they can very quickly start to influence our behavior they can start to influence our decision making and they can start to shape our sense of self so we also have a psychological ability to take a step back and try to navigate these experiences from a slightly more objective place so we might notice that these thoughts and feelings and these interpretations of the event we find ourselves in are just some of the passing ways our mind is making sense of what's happening around us. And when you start to notice that these memories and thoughts and interpretations are 
you know, cognitive activities that the brain is using to make sense of, it its, of its environment, you start to notice that, well, maybe my brain isn't as precise at interpreting these things as it might seem at first. So when you start to notice that these thoughts and memories and feelings aren't as uh, precise as what you thought, then maybe their influence over behavior and over our decision making and over our feelings moment to moment can be loosened up a bit. So we think decentering is a process of generating, you know, a new perspective in your mind from which you can experience uh, some of these difficult psychological stresses that you encounter day to day. It's really fascinating to me as somebody who's always suffered from social anxiety. I find myself ruminating on stupid things that I've said in social situations and thinking, yeah, oh my God, what a ridiculous thing to say, what an idiot. And, you know, um, that kind of feeds off itself in an- anxious people, doesn't it? And, so you, you know, you suddenly you are um, the idiot rather than just you said a silly thing. Um, and I, I think this kind of shifting perspective is really useful because we, we can, of course, shift perspective in all sorts of different ways when we look at, back at things that have happened and things that we've said. Do you want to speak a bit more about how the decentering can happen in terms of how perspective can be shifted? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things we think decentering can be helpful with, right? So you can get locked into this sort of vicious cycle of you have a thought, you really pay attention to that thought, you act as if that thought is really reliable, and then you change your behavior moment to moment based on that thought. Whereas decentering, it's it's not about challenging the thoughts or it's not about trying to reframe any of the thoughts you're having. It's more about, well, just notice that that thought and notice that thought in the context of all the other thoughts you've had uh, that are similar to this one. And then when you start to notice it in those ways, maybe you'll pick up on other things that cause you to doubt the veracity of that thought. So maybe you'll notice that you've had that thought before and it's gone away after a little while, or maybe that you've listened to this thought in the past and it brought you down a bad road. So it just gives you a bit more flexibility in how you navigate and experience some of these difficult things going on inside your head. So how do you work it into your day? Well, that's one of the reasons I really like decentering as a topic, because it seems to be a very versatile thing that you can quickly incorporate into your day to day. So it's about finding that moment where you notice you're getting sucked into these things. And in that second, trying out a few simple tactics. Uh, There is a really great review paper by two researchers, the Bar and Power, and they described four tactics that you can use to introduce decentering-like skills into your everyday life. And in that moment, when you notice that maybe you're starting to get sucked into a particular thought, they say you can try to introduce a bit of distance or between yourself and that thought uh, spatially. So what you could do is try to imagine the thought that you're having or the difficult memory you're experiencing, but from a slightly different perspective. So almost as if uh, you're taking a step out of your body and watching it as if you're a third person across the road or you know, in the same room, as if you're flying the wall, letting this event play out in your mind but you're seeing it from a slightly different space and even just introducing that spatial distance starts to help you notice that well this is a memory I'm having and I'm having it in a slightly more objective perspective. Another way you could try to do it is by taking not a a temp a spatial step out of yourself but a temporal space out of yourself 
So, you know, if you're having a particular worry and if you're focusing on something that you think is quite bad that's happened, you could imagine, okay, well, how will I feel about this in two days? How will I feel about this in two years? How will I feel about this in 20 years? And really try to re-experience the event that's uh, bothering you in the here and the now, but from that shifted temporal perspective. And again, when you start to, the research shows as you move uh, almost mentally time travel uh, uh, to that new perspective, the impact of that stressor on your uh, ongoing emotional responses can start to dampen a little bit and just makes maybe the situation a little bit more bearable. Another way you could try to introduce decentering into your day would be to do what we call objective distancing. And that's where you try to reinterpret a stressor, but from the perspective of a neutral third party. So let's say you encounter a bit of negative evaluation in work. Maybe your boss is unhappy with something you've done and they're criticizing your performance. And an example of objective distancing would be to imagine receiving that uh, negative evaluation as if you're a different person who you think handles criticisms, criticism with a bit more um, effectiveness. So we do this as an example with, uh, there's a really interesting study that came out about two, two years ago, uh, where they had done objective distancing with children while they were doing a complex cognitive task. And so these were four and five-year-olds. And they were instructed, okay, when you start to notice that the task is getting very difficult and you're getting frustrated, just try to power through and finish the task. And that's what one group of kids were told to do. The second group of kids were told, okay, when, when you notice that frustration and you notice that you're not doing the task so well, we want you to imagine you're someone who's really good at problem solving, like Batman or like Superman. And then that group of kids that were asked to adopt that objective third-party perspective on their experiences, in the end, finished the tasks a little bit better and reported that they felt less frustration as they were finishing the task. Another final way of introducing distancing in your day could be through what we call hypothetical distancing. And this is sort of a little bit simpler than all the others, but in a way, it's also a little bit more abstract. So basically, hypothetical distancing is sort of about noticing that these thoughts and memories and feelings feelings that you're encountering are more transient products of an active mind. So like you said, it's almost, it almost has a mindfulness-like feel to it, that rather than uh, not- noticing that you're having the thought and then acting on the thought or shifting the thought, you're just noticing that these things are just thoughts or that these things are just memories and that memories are products of active brains doing what it is they do. All right, so I get why psychological decentering or psychological distancing, as it's sometimes called, is a important skill for us to have as humans. I get why it could be related to anxiety and depression. And I understand why you're interested in this as an active ingredient, as potentially a way of preventing or treating anxiety and depression in young people. What I think is more challenging here is to work out how on earth you do a review on this, because I presume that the studies that look at this are either sort of lab-based psychological test kind of studies, or they're looking at decentering in the context of another intervention. 
like mindfulness or CBT or something like that. It wasn't it a really hard review to do. We started with the idea that we could just maybe look at the effect that decentering has had in psychological therapies. And then what we realized is, well, there's not a lot of studies that have looked at decentering in isolation. Usually it forms part of a different therapy. So it could be, you know, it's a cognitive behavioral intervention for social anxiety that also happened to measure decentering pre and post intervention. Or could it be an eight-week mindfulness-based intervention for uh, depression that same thing just happened to measure decentering at multiple time points? So there wasn't a lot of um, consistent methods that we could reliably collapse the data on decentering in together. And then even when we stepped back uh, from that problem, it turns out that the words we've used to describe decentering-like traits differ depending on what scientific perspective you're coming from and also which discipline of psychological therapy you were trained. So in acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a third generation intervention, uh, as we would say, if you were trained in that school of psychological intervention, you wouldn't really talk about decentering, but you talk about something kind of similar, which is called self as context and cognitive diffusion. If you didn't practice ACT, but instead we're very interested in CBT, you might not be talking about decentering. Instead, you'd be talking about something called self-distancing. And then if you're very interested in mindfulness interventions, yeah, you're more likely to use the word decentering, but you're not as likely to use the other phrases. And this kind of goes back a bit. You know, in more early psychoanalytic interventions, there was discussion of a thing called the decentered self. So we were starting to notice that there was pockets of terms that broadly captured this idea of decentering, um, but all using different labels. So that was another barrier, because uh, another barrier to completing the review. So given the difficulties we were experiencing in uh, finding ways to collapse the data across multiple studies, and even giving the finding difficulties in interpreting the words of decentering and the terms that were used to describe it, we decided to take a very broad stroke approach with our review. So we wanted to do three things to begin with. First was to map out the different words that have and definitions of decentering that have been uh, posited by different researchers over the last 50 or 60 years. And we wanted to try consolidate them into a new definition that could be used in experimental research. Then we wanted to take a look at how decentering has been measured irrespective of whether it was called self-distancing or diffusion or decentering, we were just looking at what measures have been used to capture this idea and how does it associate with mental health difficulties. And then the last thing was looking at any type of psychological intervention for anxiety and depression that has two measurements of a decentering-like trait, whether it be self-distancing or self-context or decentering itself. And we just tried to see how different psychological interventions for anxiety or depression were changing that decentering related skill across the intervention. Yeah, carry on. What did, tell us what you found. Tell us if the evidence, the limited evidence I imagine that's out there in those different pockets that you've described actually supports your views about this active ingredient. Sure. So what was sort of a tricky thing was that it's not to say that the evidence is limited. It's just that the evidence is almost uh, plentiful, but fractured. 
So it's very difficult to put a, to align and build a bigger picture. So our approach was what we call a narrative synthesis. So what our job was to it was to review the literature as best we could and try to pick out the themes of what we were observing and and uh, describe that based on our own sort of expert judgment of the situation. So the first thing we noticed was that while all these definitions were broadly capturing this idea of shifting a, a perspective when you're encountering a psychological stressor, they weren't all totally aligned perfectly. So some definitions were focusing more on, say, the emotional consequences of decentering. Other definitions would instead focus on that shift in internal perspective. And then some definitions were much more focused on the sort of neurocognitive mechanism through which decentering operates. So if it was a matter of awareness, if it was a matter of attention, if it was a matter of a thing called inhibition. So what we tried to do then was to come up with a new definition of decentering that kind of could help us align all those other definitions and could be helpful for future research. We would say that decentering is a change in the way you encounter or you navigate a difficult psychological stressor that results in a change in negative emotion. So it's a very simple definition that could be shared easily with other researchers. Then we were looking at, okay, so how does it relate to other measures of mental health? So how does decentering scales, maybe questions that ask people how to use decentering in day-to-day life, uh, how does it co-vary or how does it change with mental health, uh, self-rated mental health problems? And what we were finding was that throughout the lifespan, all the way from uh, young children through adolescence into adulthood, that there was a negative association between decentering skills in daily life and mental health problems. That means the less likely you were to try to introduce a decentering kind of mindset in your day in response to a difficult psychological stressor, the more likely you are to experience anxiety and depressive symptoms. And we also found that uh, this was a skill that began at a relatively early age. So it was present around the age of four. The ability to use decentering when prompted was present at around the age of four, but not at the age of three. So this tells us that it might be related to other executive skills that develop around that age. Um, but there's very little research in that, and we still need to investigate that a bit further. And then the last thing we did was try to see, okay, how does decentering play a role in psychological interventions? And here's where we kind of saw quite interesting findings. We found that a broad range of different psychological interventions, like cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, mindfulness-based treatments, all improved your day-to-day ability to use decentering. Uh, but that's okay. So like that just means decentering gets better across intervention. That doesn't tell us whether it's something like we were talking about earlier on, if it's an active ingredient in, in if it's an active ingredient in intervention, or if in, if instead it is just simply a consequence of having participated in psychological therapy. So some researchers have tried to get around this by measuring decentering uh, on a continuing basis. So almost every week. Uh, throughout the course of psychological intervention. So there's been two studies that have looked at this so far. And what they found was that decentering improves earlier than changes in symptom severity, and that that early improvement in decentering actually predicts those downstream changes in anxiety and depressive symptoms. So that would tell us that 
Yeah, decentering is something that's uh, ubiquitous in psychological interventions. It's relevant in a lot of them. And on when we look at the data with a like high degree of temporal resolution, we're learning that those early changes in decentering may be critical in encouraging later changes in symptom severity. So we were finding some emerging evidence to say that this is more than just a consequence of treatment-related changes in symptoms. This is more than just a consequence of having participated in interventions. Instead, that improvements in decentering may be playing a causal role in the benefits that we want to be encouraging in psychological therapy. This idea of trying to identify active ingredients in psychological therapy is a relatively new idea. For such a long time, we were focused on what works and how we can get things to work. And then when we realize, well, a lot of psychological interventions work, we've made this transition to asking questions about, well, if all these therapies are working, what is it that they have in common that's causing changes? And it takes a couple of years for those questions to be followed up with really nice methodological research designs to answer them. And it was just a real delight to see that there's already some people who have uh, tried to address those questions with decentering. So I think one of the worst things can be when you have an idea and you look into the literature and no one else has tried to do this. And then you're left wondering, well, has no one done this because it's a terrible idea? Has no one done this because um, it's very difficult? Or have people maybe done this, but they're just not reporting it because it doesn't work? So there's just so much more uncertainty uh, when you try to come at these problems and there's no earlier research to kind of uh, point a way forward. So it was a really uh, nice thing to see that um, others have investigated decentering from the perspective of it being an active ingredient and found some positive evidence to suggest that. And I guess the other thing that we can do as scientists in that situation is speak to young people themselves and find out whether this makes sense to them from their kind of lived experience perspective. How did you find doing that? What, what, how were youth advisors involved in this project? And yeah, what did that add to the project from your perspective? I think maybe what could be coming across in this interview is that describing decentering and discussing our thoughts and our experiences is a really tricky thing. And it's very easy to mix up your words and put things across in maybe uncertain terms. And our goal is to try identify very low intensity, very scalable solutions to mental health problems that could be delivered to adolescents at scale that will encourage long-term uh, mental, positive mental health. So for us, it's really crucial that we have the right words and the right language to communicate this stuff to adolescents and to teenagers. Um, so what we wanted was a group of young people to act as advisors throughout this entire project. And uh, I was really quite happy to report that we got you know, quite a diverse group as well. So these were people from different parts of the United Kingdom and from Ireland, from a range of different social economic backgrounds of boys and girls, uh, some who were very early adolescents, some who were very uh, much a little bit older and with different experiences. So some who were could be classed as maybe struggling learners who were finding school difficult and some who were, you know, maybe 
had an earlier experience with mental health difficulties. And throughout our entire project, we consulted with uh, these advisors and just tried through kind of very informal Zoom calls and then also maybe through some more formal, uh, structured, semi-structured interviews. And what we were trying to do was figure out, okay, well, have they had some experience with decentering in day-to-day life? Have they ever spontaneously noticed themselves uh, trying to shift their perspective in response to some sort of difficult psychological stressor? And if they have experienced that, what sort of words do they use to describe it? Because if we want to talk to them about it and we want to try train this as a skill, we might as well just uh, train it in a way that they're already doing to make what they're doing a bit more efficient and do so using the words they already have. And yeah, it was a really interesting experience because we were finding that maybe this was a bit of a surprise that decentering was something they had quite a bit of familiarity with, but it was tended to be very social. It tended to be that sort of objective distancing technique. So taking the perspective of a third person, but it was usually the perspective of someone they knew, a familiar friend who they thought would deal with that situation a little bit better than they would. So almost that, um, you know, your social network was a bit more important uh, in helping you decenter than what we would have thought about based on the literature or based on our own reading. And we found that while it was something they were familiar with, there wasn't a lot of specific words to go with it. So it was something that was maybe a bit uh, unnamed. It was something that they had experience with, but they didn't really label it yet. So when we start to give it words like decentering, they were like, yeah, that's kind of a good way to describing it. I can adopt that word. So we tried to explore different ways of, 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 of describing it. And now what we're in the process of doing is developing a measure of decentering in collaboration with these youth advisors. So we're trying to identify items or questionnaire items that could be used to estimate the likelihood that these guys are using decentering in day-to-day life. And based on that, we should be able to do some more reliable and precise research in future. So it, it sounds to me like this is a, you know, a, an emerging evidence base and there's lots of different types of evidence that we can draw on to bring together in this kind of narrative way. Um, I wonder what your kind of implications are for future research. You know, what do you think are the real priorities? Do you think the existing way that we do research and the existing kind of um, way research is organized is 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 it feels to me a bit like a kind of transdiagnostic approach almost. It has the same issues in that you almost have to throw away how we've done stuff in the past in order to answer some of the questions that you've got here. Yeah, that's that's a really, really great point. So when you have these shifts in the type of questions scientists are asking, it's also accompanied by changes in our methods. And um, it's I, I think developing new methods is just as challenging, if not more challenging, than developing new questions. Um, I think it can be kind of straightforward to philosophize and to notice that there's problems in a field, but developing tangible solutions that can be now shared between different lab groups across the world and then, you know, conducted in a way that can help clinicians and mental health services in how they deliver services. It's just a mammoth task and it's very challenging. Um, I'm... I'm an experimental psychologist by trade originally. So my PhD was in experimental techniques. 
So I have real appreciation for beginning these approaches with kind of simple experimental tasks that leverage some of our prior knowledge. So say one of the first things I think we should be doing with decentering is figuring out, well, what is it? Decentering is a really great description for what we think happens in that moment. And it's a way of describing changes in emotion when people shift their perspective. But we still don't know what sort of cognitive systems are being implemented when people decentering. Are we changing how people represent information in their memory? Are we encouraging them to inhibit emotion responses in a different way? Or are we maybe creating new memories that change how people interact with old memories? These are the sort of questions we don't know yet. And there's a really rich collection of psychological, experimental psychological tools that can help us delve into those sort of cognitive structures that could be important in decentering. So I think that's one important area of research is trying to identify what is decentering on a neurocognitive level. And for that, we do have some tools that could be useful. But then a second question is, okay, well, how can we leverage what we know about decentering right now? So we don't have to wait to understand all the intricacies of the mechanism of decentering before we start introducing it as a sort of tool to help people. We know that there's parts of cognitive behavioral therapy, of mindfulness treatments, of acceptance and commitment therapy that shape decentering. So one thing we're following up on at the moment is well, whether we can take those components out of other therapies, dilute them down a bit and kind of polish them off a bit and teach decentering specifically as a skill to people, to young people who aren't experiencing any symptoms of anxiety or depression, but could be at risk of experiencing it in the future. So could we teach decentering in isolation as a very simple emotion regulation skill that could help people navigate the future encounters they have with difficult psychological stressors? And, you know, I think what we do just in science and maybe psychological science, there's always a bit of juggling going on. On the one hand, we'll be investigating the neurocognitive mechanisms that explain decentering, while also exploring some of the practicalities of teaching decentering in the real world. And eventually we should get to a place where the knowledge of one research line will start to change how we administer the other research line. So maybe we'll start to learn that descent, what, what causes decentering. Maybe it's an issue of memory, or maybe it's an issue of self-perspective taking, or maybe it's an issue of inhibition. But once we start to identify the mechanism, well, now we could try to tailor the way we deliver the, 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 the training program to make it a bit more effective, to maybe optimize it. Just as much, we might realize that, well, decentering training works really well in this context, but not this context. It works really well with this age, but not that age. It works really well with people with these sort of skills, but not those sort of skills. And as we start to build that picture, that might help us focus our mechanistic research in a, in a different way. So you, I think for me, the solution is to try to, you know, create this sort of uh, symbiosis between uh, experimental psychological techniques and more traditional clinical research techniques. Mm-hmm.